Welcome to the Queer Body Podcast, where we are redefining the edges of identity and healing with your host, Dr. Laura Polak, a somatic healer and chiropractor. Let's join the podcast. Welcome to the Queer Body. I am Dr. Laura Polak, chiropractor and a white cis-born queer femme able-bodied woman, and I have the great pleasure of introducing one of my favorite people in the world, a good friend and an amazing homeopath who we have known each other for 30 years in the Bay Area. She is a practicing homeopath, trauma-informed care in the California Bay Area for 20 years. She now works with online platforms, working with people all over the world. She's worked in homeless shelters, free clinics for youth living on the streets, and now gives her time and expertise in Sacramento to several free clinics. And she is also a part of a group of homeopaths working to advance racial justice and equity in homeopath. Without further ado, I introduce Sandy Kaplan. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks so much, Laura. Thrilled to be here. It's so wonderful to have you here. Yes, feels like a long time coming. I'm excited to have a conversation. So we have a bunch of topics that we want to talk about today. The biggest one that I wanted to start with is just what makes you queer and how do you identify personally? Let's just dive right into it, shall we? It's a great question. What makes you queer and how do you identify? Like what language do you use to call yourself? Yeah. Besides my introduction. So I identify as a... um, cis, white, anti-racist, queer femme. And um, for me, what being queer is about is being not part of the mainstream, straight, heteronormative society, right? Or culture. And the reason that I like to use queer versus lesbian um, is twofold. One is that Queer is an umbrella term for me, for somebody who's outside of that heteronormative scope, right? Um, without, uh, without, what is the word? Um, without stagnating me. Like if I said lesbian, that is a very definitive definition. And it means I am a woman attracted to other women, which is not, doesn't define my whole scope. And so queer allows fluidity in it without me having to give away. I'm femme, I'm genderqueer, I'm, you know, whatever the other pieces of queer are to me, Mm -hmm. all fits under that umbrella. So I get to kind of hold the things that are more intimate about myself, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And still be under this term queer. The other part of being queer for me is that because it's been used as a derogatory term for so long, it's kind of a political term, right? Like queer is in your face. Queer is saying, we're not going away. We're not gonna be legislated out of here. We're not going to be, you know, um, erased. And I love that part about queer, that it has that political uh, strength and power to it. So that's why I use that term. That's awesome. I'd love to dive into it because you and I can dive into things. Yeah. Um, For me, one of the things that happened is that queer became a little appropriated. And when I first came out, 
Um, I never really identified as a lesbian. And to be 100% honest with you, it had to do with I didn't like the fashion of lesbians, you know, at the time I came out, there was a certain fashion that I thought I had to be to fit in, which is I cut off all my hair, which I literally did. Absolutely. I wore boxy clothing, uh, including flannels and um, got rid of all my makeup. I shaved my head bald. <laughs> I wore Doc Martens and I tried to fit in into this idea of what I thought a lesbian was. And I was buying into something that was kind of a societal projection of what it meant to be lesbian. And it also was all the signifiers that would help me be seen in the world right. so that I could attract a female partner. Um, right. But it it was like within mere moments, I was like, this is not me. This I, I, I feel literally queer. I feel peculiar. I feel weird. I feel like I'm dressing in drag to try to attract somebody. So it's interesting because you and I had this conversation recently where I almost gave up the word queer because it's become so not political now. Like you can go to Target and buy a t-shirt that says queer on it. Absolutely. For better or worse, right? I mean, right. I mean, there's a, there's a beauty in that because we're being seen and it's that mixed um, blessing of when something is underground and suddenly it's above ground. Like, right. you know, assimilation has has its benefits and its disadvantages, right? Like, I love that the queers coming up now have an easier journey than we do. I love that. Okay, let me preface this. I came of age in the in the California Bay Area, so my experience is not the same as a lot of people's in this country. But my experience living here is that when I was holding hands with my girlfriend 30 years ago, I was out, I was loud, I was proud, and I was getting beat up on the streets for it. And I'm hoping and assuming that queers coming up now, at least here, are having an easier time they don't think twice. I don't think they think twice about holding their partner's hand in the street because it's because we're more assimilated, just as we had it easier than our predecessors coming up before us, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And there was something really beautiful, like you said it, walking down the street and seeing one of your own and having that beautiful connection of like, I see you, you see me like we got each other's backs right now in this moment. And that's, I don't know if that's still there. Maybe it is. I don't know. You know, it's that thing of, of any culture or subculture that gets assimilated. What do you gain and what do you lose? Right? Absolutely. I think they're all important points because yes, in the Bay area, we are definitely um, have an easier time, have less violence. And yes, violence did happen 30 years ago. And it is happening less. We are on television now. We are all kinds of places. But if we can go back to kind of the assimilation piece, um, I, I also think one of the conversations I'd love to chat with you about is you and I both identify as um, queer femmes. And one of the things yeah. that has always been difficult as a queer femme is invisibility. Um, so I would like to hear what one first your definition of being a queer femme is, 
And then second, like, what do you notice about this piece of like, once you start dressing the way you want, or sometimes are you noticeable? And I think even in your case, you have unique scenarios where you disappear. Right. And are you referring to my partner? Absolutely. You know, just being attached to, yeah, being attached to a trans man who identifies as trans male deems me invisible. (laughs) It's not a word. Um, So I identify as a rough and tumble femme because for me, I think that um, the sort of stereotypical femme is that like, um, you know, Minnie Mouse, lots of lipstick and bows Mm. and big heels and swishy Marilyn Monroe kind of femme, which is gorgeous. And it's so not me. I can't pull that off. I don't want to pull that off. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, rough and tumble means I can, um, you know, much more easily be, just as easily be under my car, working on my car as I can, you know, sitting with a cocktail in my hand in four inch heels. Like they're both me. Yes. And I'm femme in all of that. And, um, you know, I'm constantly trying to think of what does femme mean? And for the longest time, I kept thinking of it in relation to Butch, right? Like what's femme's counterpart? Butch. Hmm. And then I heard somebody recently, I wish I knew who it was because I would give credit, who said femme is to give honor to where there has been shame. Mm. And for me, that coined it exactly. Because all of my life, I've been told I'm wussy, I'm swishy, I cry easily, I like my heart is big and too sensitive, quote unquote. Right. And not that, not that you can't have those things and not be femme, but the way that I was doing those things had a femme flavor and I was uh, seen as weaker because of all of those things. And so for me, all those things that, that I thought might be shameful in me yes. are my femme pieces. And so that thing of to give honor where there was shame, like that to me is it. That's femme and that's it standing all by itself. Does that make sense? I love that. And I I would just kind of jump in there and say, you know, for me, the claiming of femme is, you know, yes, there's some feminine pieces, but without the heteronormative garbage. So for a long time, I said, hey, I'm a drag queen. Um, So I I hear what you're saying. and, And also, I love the divine feminine pieces, the emotionality, the open heartedness, the caring, the empathy. And all of those things that are um, in the heteronormative world put down on, that you're embracing them and loving them makes all the sense in the world to me as part of your identity. And quite frankly, I love the idea of being under a car with good good heels on. And even when I was a young girl, (laughs) I would, you know, climb the trees in a full gown because that's just where my comfort level is. So there's not, you know, there is a projection of this heteronormative garbage, like how women are supposed to be, that the queer identity of femme, we can play with and we can empower and it has a feminist sense to it that isn't even included in what we see in in the general culture. Does that 
jive with what you're saying? Right. Absolutely. Will you say a little bit more about your drag queenie, how you threw that in? Yeah, well, so when I came out as femme, um, again, I was kind of trying to reclaim that I like lipstick and frilly dresses and heels. And I liked all of these things. When I was a child, I was the girl who wore the gowns. I just enjoyed all of that. Um, but I'd always been a feminist. My mother literally did wear combat boots. So I was really confused by the idea that I had to go into this, um, you had spoken about earlier, this butch femme dichotomy, which did feel for me like I was emulating something in the heterosexual culture that didn't really work for me. Mm -hmm. So then I looked to my queer community and the only people that were emulating the type of femme I wanted to be were drag queens. Um, I loved their style. I loved their fashion sense. I loved the over-the-topness. I loved the artistry, the creativity. Um, it allowed me to break the boundaries of what a societal femme woman would be. So much like yourself, like there are beautiful femmes in the world who have kind of a more classic definition of femininity. But because I am a kind of a broad-shouldered, strong woman, I didn't fit into that ideal. So the drag queens are the ones who kind of gave me an ideal that I could lust after, honestly. <laughs> oh, I love that. Absolutely. Right. Where you get to just really bust it open, exaggerate the pieces that speak to you. And I remember those days of the flannel shirts. I didn't even know what queer, what... um. I didn't even know what femme was back then. And I remember this is the eighties I'm talking, you know, all the lesbians wore flannel shirts and overalls. And I remember always wearing my overalls like down around my hips so that I could tie my flannel shirt into a little bow <laughs> because it was like, I still had to show that I was me, even if I didn't know what me was. Yes. Right. Yes. Like, like how our true essence just like seep through the cracks and the seams and yeah. I absolutely love that. And it does bring me to the idea that I wanted to touch in on in the gosh, late eighties, early nineties. Um, we were re-embracing our femme identity and you and I were part of a femme conference. Do you remember this? Of course, absolutely. The first femme conference in the Bay Area. It was one of, yes, it was the first time that I had been around a bunch of other femmes talking about what it means to be femme. And one of the things that just shocked the heck out of me was that I did a performance piece and I went to, um, in the Bay Area, we got to have the Frameline Festival. So there was always the gay Frameline Festival. So I just took my tape recorder back in the day and recorded people on what does it mean to be femme. And it was shocking to me because most people um, equated femme with being either in the top or the bottom position in sex. Have you ever heard this definition of femme? Yes, absolutely. From a million years ago, I mean, I don't, I haven't heard it in ages, but yes, right. I was in a community the other day that also thought that that's what femme meant, either the receiving role or the giving role. And, you know, from this queer perspective, I I was dumbfounded. I'd never heard anything like that. <laughs> right. So what do you remember of the conference? Do you remember that? And anything that or aha that you'd like to share with the audience? Okay. The one thing that I remember is... Um, 
that I think that what femmes were getting from the general queer or, you know, gay, lesbian or whatever community that we were in at that point, I was getting this message that femmes were supposed to compete with each other. Yes. That you, we were trying to be like the femmiest woman in the room. Yes. Um, you know, if another femme came in that had nicer shoes, we were supposed to not bond with her and you and I never ascribed to that. That was not, that was never how you or I ever walked through the world or the people who we knew. Right. And I think that the Femme Conference was this big message to our queer community at large saying, you have it wrong. Like we are not here to ascribe to that um, Hollywood stereotypical, like, uh, you know, female bitch fest. Like women don't do that. Yes. And, and I don't know if it's, um, if it's, if there's this stereotype or this push for women to do that because it keeps us from claiming our power, you know, in unity, there is power, or if it's like sexy to the male gaze, like, I'm not sure what it's about, but for me, the Femme Conference was very much a message of saying that is not, that has never been here and we are a united front. And this is how we can connect and become a become a force to be reckoned with. That's what I remember from it. I so remember that too, Sandy. It was the first time I had been with that many women who identified as femme. It was so empowering. And I will be honest with you, I miss it. Yeah. Like I moved on with my life. That was a, a long time ago. What what now? What is your experience as being a femme woman? now later in your life well you know it's interesting that's such a great question because femme is um you know it's not so much a a thing at least in my culture i think in a lot of subcultures femme is still uh a thing you know is is something to be claimed and i think that in the subcultures that i move in which are more queer non-binary uh femme is almost like a relic right and for me, it is who I am. So it's not like who I am goes in and out of fashion, right? But there is a little piece of that that feels like, uh, like elder, like femme is almost synonymous with elder. Like, oh, oh, she's an elder, so she gets to be femme. <laughs> that is so funny. You know what I mean by that? I do. Yeah. Like, you know, the old school femme or something. Um, and what we touched on a little bit a minute ago is that because I am partnered with a trans man, I am very much seen as a straight woman in the world. Even when we go into gay venues, we're seen as a straight couple and we've figured out quick and easy ways to out ourselves, how to work, you know, our identities into casual conversations so that we can belong to the club, right? Right. And femme has very much changed for me from you know, when I was 30 to now being 60, femme is much more um, embodied. It's not so much about the badges that I wear, right? It's not so much about my pin that says femme and my eyeliner that, you know, wraps around my head and my shoes. It's, <laughs> it's about my body language and, and how I look at the world. And I, I'm not even sure if I can explain what that means, but I think it's what you were talking about a minute ago about like, 
my heart being in that very tender place. Again, your heart can be in a tender place without being femme, but like it's, it's more an internal thing than having to wear yeah. the costume that says femme to me, if that makes sense. Wow, I love that. I, I really love that because as we age, I think that's what happens, period. And as we age as yeah. femmes, you know, embodying what that means to us in our day-to-day -day lives, it does become less showy. Right. But it doesn't become any less femme. All of the ideals of who we are. Right. It's less showy versus less femme. Yeah, I love that. Um, unless you're Laura and still do drag. <laughs> On a good day. I don't get to dress like that to work. Wouldn't that be lovely? Um, and, you know, I will I will out myself here and say the reason I don't do high femme drag frequently, besides that laundering is difficult, um, is that I don't like the attention I get from the heterosexual community. So I am more tempted to dress in high drag where it's appreciated by queers. Um, I d I've never appreciated the male gaze attention I get as a sexual being when I dress in high drag. So I find that in, in straight world, I do downplay my, my clothing. I'm going to transition us because you and I are friends and we could talk for days, but I also want to hear how your queer identity and your femme identity plays out in helping communities. You're doing all this amazing work in the world. We're both practitioners. And I know um, I would call you a queer practitioner just in the fact that homeopathy is not something that people know about. It's on the fringes. It's queer. Right. Right. Absolutely. So I think that the way that my queerness and my feminist um, plays out in my practice is that I have personal experience with uh, what it means to walk towards my higher calling mm. and figuring out who I am in my most authentic way. And as a homeopath, and we can go into what that is if you want to, but for now, I work alongside people as their bodies and their spirits remember how to go towards health. Mm. And so what I'm doing as a homeopath is I'm helping people figure out who they are when they're at their most free. And illness and disease, um, it constrains us, right? It keeps us from being our most free being. And so I am here to help people remember what it is they want from this world, why they're here, um, and how to walk towards that as their most authentic and free selves. And so part of that is helping them, their bodies remember how to heal. Part of that is also holding pieces of them that have been pathologized by the Western culture and the Western medical system. And so, you know, here we are, it's 2022, and we know that being queer, being trans, non-binary, being part of the leather kink community, all these things are still being pathologized in our Western medical system. And 
as a homeopath, one of the things that we learn in school is to withhold our own judgment as best as humanly possible, Yes. how to work through our own judgment so that we can sit with someone and not judge or pathologize who they are, right? Like, it's not for me to t- tell you what your pathology is. It is for you to tell me how you best want to experience freedom in your body, in your health, in your soul, in your psyche, and for me to support that that movement and that growth. I don't even remember your question now. It doesn't matter because I'm ready to cry. Like, what queer person doesn't want that? What a beautiful way to hold any queer individual from any walk of life. You know, I think Mm. for myself, um, also being in the alternative healing arts, the idea of diagnosis, doing harm to people, and even this segue you're making about the diagnosis of, you know, my self-diagnosis of having to be a lesbian and not being authentic to who I am, to have a practitioner that can hold your authenticity and reflect back to you, your whole nature and who you're supposed to be, is just gorgeous, Sandy. What a beautiful definition. And for my um, listeners or viewers who don't know what a homeopath is, would you spell that out for us? Sure. Yeah. So homeopathy is a healing modality. It's a holistic healing modality in the way that uh, Chinese medicine is or Ayurveda is. So it's its own system of healthcare. And the premise is that we know how to heal ourselves. But in this day and age, eating food that isn't food, even breathing air that is toxic, we have forgotten in the name of survival how to do certain things. And one of them is how to heal ourselves. And so homeopathy is a modality that helps the body remember how to heal itself. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of quick and dirty version. And I I just want to take a second and say that I really love that you and I knew each other back when. Yes. And that now that we have both found our new callings, new (laughs) 20-year-old callings and new paths, that we're still so aligned because both of the ways that we practice healthcare do exactly that and support people being free and and choosing and learning, relearning how to heal themselves, right? Like we both do that. Yes, which is in itself a subversive act, right? Which feeds into all the activism we did with Queer Nation Act Up. Absolutely. All the protesting, all of that. But now we're doing it like you had described about your feminists at a more embodied level and helping people learn to be free Mm -hmm. by connecting into themselves and expressing themselves the way they need or want or desire. It's really just everything to me. It's a beautiful definition. Yeah. Yeah, I so appreciate that. Thanks. I'm going to bring us to the next piece, which is we, we both are functioning within a culture. And that culture shapes how we express ourselves. So back in the 80s, 90s, um, you had already talked about how you sometimes were threatened or abused for being queer. And now that culture Mm -hmm. has shifted and we're here. What's the culture like for both your queerness and for your homeopathy? What is the culture that you're working within that's supporting or not supporting what you do? Oh, that's so interesting because it it would seem like there are different answers, right, for my queerness and for my profession. 
And yet there's so many um, parallel lines in that. So homeopathy is a very powerful healing modality. And if people remember how to heal themselves, there will be less need for medication, for an identity that says I'm sick, right? And big pharma, as we know, is really has a stronghold in this country and in this world. And the more that homeopathy gains a hold, the more that homeopathy has become um, more and more popular in this country, the more it's been hunted down with big, by big pharma and by the FDA. And so I am now starting to feel like a pariah practicing homeopathy. The FDA has been trying to slowly chip away at what we can and cannot do um, with the ultimate goal I see of probably shutting us down because we are one of the biggest threats to big pharma. Well, how is that so for our, for our community that doesn't know about such things? Why would big pharma come after homeopathy? Homeopathy can be used as an adjunct to medication. And very often as people are on homeopathic remedies for a period of time, what they notice is that their medication um, gets to be too high and they need to go back to their doctors and have it readjusted. And their medication over time gets lower and lower and lower until they're using either less of it or they don't need it anymore. And so, you know, that's one less person being on medication for the rest of their lives. So as we as a society need less medication, big pharma gets less money, has less power. And I think that that's a huge threat. Got it. So we're starting to be um, monitored. We're starting to be constrained a lot of our power as homeopaths is trying to be stripped away. And so my profession has had to become much more vigilant in um, making sure that homeopathy stays accessible and legal. And that's not something I ever thought would happen. You know, that's not really happening to, um, you know, Reiki practitioners or acupuncturists or chiropractors in the way that it is to homeopaths. Right. So that's one thing. And, and it's interesting because it, um, it kind of makes me remember my lineage as an alternative practitioner of coming from healers and witches and herbalists, you know, that were often seen as uh, heretics, right? Yeah. And so um, it's like, oh, that's actually still playing out. That's not so much in the past. And then as a queer you know, my queerness is changing, mostly because I'm older. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I lost the thread of what that question was. So I'm not sure how to answer it for queer. That's okay. I was just talking about the culture and how it affects both your queerness and your homeopathy. And it's okay if we only delve into one, because there's always so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I really hear what's happening with homeopathy. And I'm really sorry for it. And I would just put forth as a queer person, you've been fighting the battle for as long as I've known you, which is a going on 30 years. So it's it's not foreign to you to fight a battle on an alternative healing front. And, and actually, I even take a front to the term alternative because um, I will out you here and we can edit it out if you don't like. But I know that you went to Africa and worked with people who had 
HIV and or full-blown AIDS, and they didn't have traditional Western, and so you were the primary treating physician, which so many of us are, and that sometimes as a primary treating, it works better than as a alternative to Western medicine. It kind of puts us in a um, negative light as if we are the luxury item as opposed to, hey, we're actually serious healthcare providers as well as Western medicine is serious healthcare providers. Absolutely. And I love it. So sorry, I went off on my rant, but no, I, I love it. Maybe you could speak to your experiences in Africa. Yeah. And I think that that's really a beautiful and I appreciate it that we are alternative here, but in a lot of the world, we're not. Yes. I mean, in India, in Mexico, homeopathy is part of their healthcare system. Right. And in Tanzania, I went to practice with my teacher, Jeremy Scher, who lives there with his family. He's South African. And, you know, in these rural areas, there isn't much access to Western medical health care. And so a lot of the people there with HIV or AIDS had um, some antiretrovirus uh, medications that they had been on for years that had stopped working. And in this country, when people are on those medications, they get switched periodically because mm -hmm. they lose their efficacy. And in Tanzania, there was no one coming in switching their medications. So they had medications that were old, that were not working for them anymore. They were getting sick. And homeopathy was, was there, you know, whether they wanted to do it, didn't want to do it, believed in it, didn't believe in it. It was something they could try. It was free. And um, it, like the change in people was miraculous. I was just there for six weeks. And just in six weeks, I could see people getting their lives back. I mean, it was an incredible turnaround. And it's not something I talk about a lot because it's so hard for people to believe that something can work that quickly in a disease that is that um, devastating. And when you get something that is speaking to your body, uh, transformation can work quickly. And this is really my point about being within a cultural paradigm that changes. So in the United States, we have a certain cultural paradigm about what we call alternative healthcare providers, which I would rename to healthcare providers with a different mission. And if we take that in other countries, even it's got a whole different implication. So I appreciate you playing it with me. Yeah. And I will move us. I, I just doing lots of pivots. And if I have to have you come back, I will. <laughs> but the last pivot is I really would like something for our audience to be able to go, okay, now what can I do at home yeah. to practice some of these ideas we're talking about? So do you have an exercise that you would be happy to walk us through? I do. Yeah. If you can bear with me for, you know, three or four minutes, I do a grounding practice that I got from Generative Somatics, which is an incredible organization and where it's where I did my trauma-informed training. Do we have a few minutes to do this? It's a grounding practice. I would love that. And, you know, if people are 
not wanting to have an exercise, they can exit here. Okay. And in our liner notes, you will find all the ways to contact Sandy as well as myself. But if you would like to stay and actually have a three-minute practice, I would highly recommend it. Great. And people can find this practice um, by going online and searching Somatic Justice Healing. It's a Healing Justice Podcast. It's a somatic practice on the Healing Justice Podcast. And so the purpose of this practice is to help find a home base within our bodies to uh, generate a sense of safety in there and give us more room. And then with more room, we can find more choices and options when we're under pressure, right? And when we get familiar with this place inside ourselves, we can always return to it. So if people are going to do this with me, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand up. And if you're sitting or lying down, just pay attention to the places where your body makes contact with whatever's holding it. And so softly lid your eyes. Don't focus on anything, but don't necessarily close your eyes. Stay in connection. And notice any sensations. Notice the way your arms rest against your sides or the clothes on your skin or if there's any kind of tightness in your chest or gurgling in your stomach, and just hold curiosity for what you find, right? Release the judgment. Create a capacity here to just be with what is in the body. And then feel into your feet. Feel tall in your spine. Feel tall in your head. Breathe into your full length. And this path from feet to body to head this is where your dignity lives. So feel into it and acknowledge your dignity and feel into the dignity of others. So take that length and begin to widen it out. Feel into the room around your heart and at your sides, widen into your hips and your feet, get a sense of what's immediately on either side of you. And this is where our boundaries and our availability to others lives. This is our connection plane. And now begin to center in depth, breathing into your back body from head to neck, shoulders, down your back and butt to your feet. This is your journey through time. This is the past at your back and you're bringing your ancestors with you. So feel into them and know that you're held and brought into this moment by them. And that this is also where your wisdom lives back here. So rest into that. And then begin to bring your attention forward into the front of your body. Notice your breath there, your heartbeat, your chest, and your solar plexus. And feel where you inhabit this present moment and where you begin to lean into the unknown of what is to come. And from this place, ask yourself, what do I care about? What do I long for? And what do I love? What am I committed to, even under pressure? And then listen to yourself. Breathe into your length, your dignity, your width, your connection, your back, your wisdom, and your front, your commitment. And then just notice and breathe. And when you're ready, come on back into the group. Come on back into Laura and me. Come back into your seat 
This is something that I do with people often. It relaxes the nervous system. That was absolutely fabulous. And I do it often. What a wonderful way to end our time together because I know I could talk to you forever. Yeah. Any last parts you'd like to say about that exercise you just walked us through? One thing for me is that I do a lot of anti-racist work. And this grounding practice is a way where I can know that I will be imperfect in my work mm. and still keep showing up because it helps me remember to ground, to breathe. My ancestors are at my back. My connection is at my side. My dignity is within. And I can move forward into places that are frightening for me and continue to show up and do my work. So that's, that's what this practice is for me. And I really thank you for that. Thank you for doing your work. I so respect you, Sandy. I so respect you, Laura. Oh, thank you, sweetie. As we close out this episode, tell us how we can find you, how to connect with you and anything that you're currently doing. Sure. Um, so my practice is called Divine Monkey Homeopathy. And um, I'm at divinemonkeyhomeopathy.com, but that is a mouthful. So if you just search for Divine Monkey Sacramento, you'll find me. You can search for my name, Sandy with an I, Kaplan, Sacramento, and you'll find me. Um, and I am working right now in two free clinics, working to uh, look at racial justice and racial equity in the homeopathic society at large, the homeopathic world. You can find me in any of those places. Wonderful. And we can also, I will put a plug in that just because she's in Sacramento doesn't mean you can't do work with her via Zoom Thank you. or on the internet. So um, when you get to her website, if this speaks to you and you want to work with her long distance, that is an option. And I do also do 30-minute um, appointments where people can just come in, check me out, see if I'm the right person for them to work with. And there's no pressure in there to schedule an appointment. So it's a way of seeing if we if we gel. Wonderful. And Sandy, do you also do trauma? I do. Work? Or are you only a classical homeopath? What, what would that be? It's the same thing? Yeah, I'm a classical homeopath who does trauma-informed care. So just very quickly, what that means is that I am trained at working with people's trauma without them having to relive it or go back into it. So it's a way of holding a safe space, letting the remedies work gently on people's hurt, wherever that might be, without needing to go all through places of trigger over and over. Thank goodness. Yeah. All right, beautiful. I'm gonna sign off. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Laura. I love and adore you, and I'm glad you're in the world. Love and adore you too. You've been listening to The Queer Body Podcast, where we are redefining the edges of queer identity and healing. For more information about Dr. Laura Polak or our podcast, check out our website, communityholistichealth.com. Thank you for listening.